You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. Yeah, I believe that the Lord has brought you here for a reason, amen? And that purpose extends past your own thinking or expectation. But as you sit here, and as you get to immerse yourself in worship, and as you hear the message of the Bible, and as you hear the name of Jesus proclaimed, and as you hear the different movement of programs that's happening within Shining Star, uh, within our church, and as you sit here, I believe and know that you'll be blessed. You'll be blessed. Um, So why do we come to church? First of all, we come because the Bible tells us to. But we also come because it's an opportunity to worship God, right? We come because likely we'll have some big life, big life questions answered here. We come because the preaching of the Bible will help direct our lives. And who needs direction? I do, right? I need direction. Amen. We come because we'll probably make new friends. Who needs friends? I do. <laughs> That's what I'm constantly saying. Hey, you want to hang out? You want to hang out? You want to eat? You want to hang out? Right? Uh, We come because this is also a sign of discipleship, too. This tells us how far you've gone in your spiritual walk with the Lord and your spiritual maturity. We come because it encourages people like me, your pastor, and also your leaders. We come because you'll be encouraged in your walk with God, and we come because your presence actually encourages your fellow brothers and sisters in their journey, right? We come because it'll help you understand the Bible. It'll help you define what you know and believe. And the reasons go on and on and on. Now, I'm going to give you one more reason, a reason that actually a lot of churches, a lot of people have repeatedly shot down and said that it's almost sinful, maybe just wrong, and that is people come to church so that they might meet someone, so that they would meet someone. Oh, y'all too holy, say amen to that? Okay, you're like, oh, I would never, know. I come here for the Lord only. <laughs> Let me tell you something. <clears throat> I'd rather, you, you can quote me on this. I'd rather you come to church looking for a girl or a guy than going to a bar or club. Okay? I do. And the reason why I prefer you meeting someone here is not because in any way we are better than those in the clubs and in the bars. Trust me, I've met you all. Okay? But I'd rather you come here looking for someone because what happens more often than not, and this is all purely by the grace of God, is that in your search for that perfect person, in your search for the better half, in your search for the one who will, as Jerry Maguire so eloquently put it, will complete you, if you pay attention, if you listen closely, if your heart is really open, and if you're really honest with yourself, you'll realize that here in this room, In this church, there is no one perfect here for you, let alone any perfection within you for them, right? And so in this rude awakening of your own brokenness, that's when you will meet that perfect person, and it really will be a match made in heaven because the person that you're meant to spend the rest of your life with is Jesus, right? It's Jesus, and all the singles right now are like, ah, man, I knew you were going to say that. I thought you were actually set up some like speed dating or shining star or whatever. That's not a bad idea though. Look, I was tempted to make this sermon really valentiny, right? But if you know me, you know that I would really never just make it about that. But 
Just to satisfy any of you who are curious about this capitalistic day we call Valentine's, right? Everyone's like, Greece is so lucky to have you, right? Well, hear me out. You know, Christmas, we have Santa, and he's not real, but he's based off of a real person, and I tell that to my kids every day. Well, not every day, but every Christmas. I do. I do. I say, I sit, sit down. I sit Ada down. And I say, he's not real, right? Santa's not real, and do you know why? Before you judge me, okay, <laughs> let me tell you why. Because I want the credit. I want the credit because Grace and I are working our tails off. We're the ones budgeting. We're the ones trying to make ends meet. And I'm not about to have some sleigh-riding, cookie-eating, home-invading, fictitious character take all my credit. You get what I'm saying? So no, Santa is not real, but the hours that Daddy puts into his work is. Okay? So... If you want to talk about the actual St. Nicholas, now that's a completely different story, and I would highly encourage you to talk to your kids about that or your, or your friends or your family. He's a great Christian man who happened to inherit a lot of money, and he built a wonderful reputation for giving gifts anonymously. He would throw literally bags of money and gifts into people's homes, and yes, even down their chimneys. Hence the tradition, right? He is an example of, I believe, godly, financial stewardship and spiritual generosity. And so tell your kids about this guy, right? And not about the jolly elf enslaver. All right, so what about Valentine's Day then? Well, we have Cupid, we know. But Valentine, like St. Nick, he was actually real. Back in the third century Rome, Emperor Claudius, he decided that single men just made better soldiers. And so he banned all soldiers from being married. Now, there's a couple versions to the story. One says that St. Valentine, he continued to perform these weddings for young soldiers who happened to fall in love. And then he got caught and he got imprisoned. And it was in prison that he fell in love with the jailer's daughter. And so he sent her letters, letters of romance, letters of love, letters of just, I miss you. And he would sign it, love your Valentine. I don't know if that's completely true, but another version is that Valentine, he simply defied Claudius the emperor by helping Christians escape the torture of the Romans, which during that time, Christians were being persecuted. And so what the church has done at that time and even now is that they began to celebrate his impact, his life, by Christianizing a Roman or pagan celebration called Lupercalia. Now here's the thing. If you want to celebrate it or not, it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. It's your conviction to participate in a secular holiday. But here's my personal recommendation, okay? Go have a nice dinner with your spouse. Go have a nice dinner with your girlfriend or boyfriend. Go out with your friends. Go out with your life group. In fact, I remember a couple years ago, our life, one of the life groups, a couple of life groups, they all just hung out on that Valentine's Day. And it was wonderful because it doesn't matter. But when you do meet, obviously we won't be celebrating Valentine himself because I think he'd be rolling in his grave if he knew that we were somehow idolizing him. But we want to go and celebrate what he stood for. And that was the love of Christ. So go and celebrate Valentine's Day. Share in that extravagant love of Jesus. Amen? Amen? Yeah. All right. Okay, so the reason why I'm not preaching on how to love your wife or how to love your husband or how to love your family member or whatever is because that can be done over a simple conversation, over a cup of coffee with me spewing out a dozen and a half practical steps on how to love one another. 
But here's the thing. If all that changes are simply your efforts, then nothing has really changed because, get this, behavior modification is never the cure. You hear me? Just changing your behavior for a moment, for a week, for a month is never the cure. Because if, if all that's changed is to pick up maybe a couple stem of roses, stems of roses for your wife on the way home, or make our man his favorite meal, those actions, while good, good, and certainly appreciated, will not resolve the burning question that we all have and that we all have asked ourselves in the moments of heated arguments, in the moments of difficult and trying circumstances, and yes, even the moment of something as tragic as marital unfaithfulness, and that question is, why should I love you? You don't deserve my love. Why should I love them? And how much more can I push myself to love them? In other words, how deep can my love go? Because guess what, honey? I am spent, I am tired, and honestly, every fiber in my body wants out of this. You get that? And to answer that, it does not begin with a psychoanalysis of how functional or dysfunctional your upbringing was to make you the man and woman that you are today. It doesn't begin with your past relationship tragedies, or let's say being cheated on, or you being the cheater. It doesn't start with your inexperience in the world of relationships, in that you've never really been in a serious relationship before, nor does it start with our present culture of shallow dating, thanks to things like Tinder and the culture of hooking up. So no, it begins, however, with this one question. There's one question that we have to ask ourselves. Who is Jesus? That's it. Who is Jesus? Because if you want to know how deep your love can go for the people around you, for the people in your life, ask yourself, how deep do you know is the love of Christ? How deep do you know is the love of Christ? Because when you are good with Jesus, okay, when you are good with Jesus, you begin to view all other relationships in a different light. You just do. You do. Having an intimate relationship with Jesus will give you the health and it will give you the healing and the direction and the comfort anyone and everyone needs to persevere and also navigate through the tangled web of our broken connections with one another. He will give you the perseverance, and he will give you the guidance to do that. That's why the Bible constantly uses these metaphors of Jesus as the one we need, as our cornerstone, as our rock, as our refuge, as the mother hen who gathers her chicks under her wings. Jesus needs to be the nucleus, not just in our marriage relationship, but in all our relationships, Okay? In all our relationships, because it's only through him and it is only in him can we find healing and restoration. Without him, all that happens then if we just gather together, even with our spouses, even with our best friends, is simply just a collaboration of broken and sinful lives with no direction and no hope. If and when, and I'll be honest, Grace and I get into it, I have to hope and pray that she's going to Jesus. Because as much as I or she try to make things better, it'll only put a band-aid over a gaping wound. And she knows full well with all my issues, with all, all the issues I got, that I need his healing hands on me too. 
And she is hoping and praying to God that I'm going to Jesus too. You, you feel me? Right? Because at the end of the day, even in any type of situation you have with one another, all you can kind of do if you don't have Jesus is look at each other with blank eyes and saying, what do we do now? There's nothing else to do. We've tried groveling. We tried forgiving. We tried doing this. We tried going to counseling. We tried doing all this. Nothing. Why? Because that person did not go to Jesus. Because I did not go to Jesus. I'm sorry, but you know what? There are some wounds in our lives that need more attention than simply a Dr. Phil quote. Right? Now, I don't know about you guys, but in my marriage and in my relationships, I don't want to survive another day. Hear me out. I don't want to just survive a week, survive a month, or survive a year. I want to flourish. How about you? Yeah? I want to flourish. I want growth. I want to know that the challenges that I face and that the brutal circumstances I'm in are meant to sovereignly and somehow divinely shape me and mold me and lead me. I want to thrive in my walk with my wife, in my walk with my children. I want to flourish in my walk with all of you all. And the only way I can ever understand how I can extend that love is by evaluating my love relationship with Jesus. Okay? So here we go. You ready? That was the introduction. You ready? So the overall theme of this entire sermon is simply this. To abide means to love. Okay, so in the beginning of chapter 15, Jesus uses a metaphor of a vine and branches, and then he tells us how we must be connected to him. And so Jesus, he would take that metaphor, and he would kind of take it apart piece by piece, and now he gets to the bottom line. And what was the bottom line? The bottom line is, Jesus says, it's the same thing that was for the Israel back in the day of Moses. It said, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. In other words, he's saying, listen to the one Lord. Listen to the one Lord. And that's, what's, that's what abiding in Jesus involves, a lifestyle of listening. Okay? A lifestyle of listening. Now, when we hear this basic tendency to say, I know, Pastor Dave, I know we need to listen to God. But give me something new, PD. It is for that reason that God, he repeats it so many times. Because he knows when we say, I'm listening, he says, you're not listening to me. You're not listening to me. You're not hearing me. It's going through one ear and out the other. But you see, when we think of abiding in him, we have to think about the different variables in our Christian lives that make me a Christian. And this is kind of our problem. This is what we do. We say, well, no, I feel like I'm listening. I feel like I'm abiding in him. I feel like I'm being a good Christian person because I will go to church regularly. I'm a good person. I obey the law. I do good by serving and giving the church and so on and so forth. But if you see this, Jesus didn't say that was what, uh, that was what abiding was. He said, to abide, you must love. You must love. Now, we know what loving looks like. We know what it feels like. We know what it sounds like. Have you ever said this or maybe even heard this? Wow, she is the most wonderful person I've ever known. Or, hey, did I tell you about what he did for me? It was just so amazing. Or, man, I don't know what I would do without her. I would be nothing. I need her in my life. Or how about this? Honestly, all he has to do is walk into the room and my heart just melts. So we know what love is. We know the kind of emotional response. You see, love, it's not cold, Right? It's not mechanical, it's passionate, 
It's fervent. It's inseparable. It's consuming. It's lasting. It's relational. When we love someone, we'll spend everything we have with that person. Take time away from everything else in our lives to be with that person. Heck, we will even make fools of ourselves to impress that person. When you're in love, there's a sense of invincibility, right? If we want to be fruitful in our Christian lives, then we must know that comes from abiding, which isn't only listening, but especially it means loving Jesus. You want to abide in Christ. You want to make sure that he is the rock of your life. You must abide in him. Why and how? By loving him. That's how it is. Now, there's no need to use your imagination as to what abiding in love means because Jesus, he sets himself and his love for his dad, his father, as the model for us. So you see, whenever Jesus talked about his father, it was always about his glory. Like he just promoted his dad. He just lifted up his heavenly father. Jesus, he was never just on his, doing his own thing. It was always about how can God the father receive glory. Jesus, he didn't want to make himself famous. He wanted to give all glory to his father. He wanted all praises and all worship lifted up to his father. Even when Jesus was getting really popular and these huge crowds would come and in fact they would swarm around him and they would want him. They were trying to make him king. You know what Jesus did? He ran away. He ran away to be alone with God so that he can make some decisions and so that he can pray to his father, right? But not only that, Jesus would go on nights without sleep so that he could talk, about his, talk to his father. He would even stop in the middle of doing miraculous signs so that he could pray and he can be in tune and aligned with his father. You see, the example that Jesus gave us is simply this, and this is an example that we need to model too in our marriages, in our parenting, in our church relationships, and everything, and that is this. You need to be preoccupied with your relationship with your Heavenly Father. You need to be consumed by Him. We need to be so ins just insatiably enwrapped and in love with Jesus. Jesus, you see, was totally given over to his Father. And that's what it meant to be captured and enraptured by the Father's love. Do you want that type of relationship with Jesus? That is what we need. If you want to survive here, that is what we need. He is our life Savior. Okay? And so here are some practical ways that will enable us to see the fruit of whether we're actually abiding in him or not. And this is first. If you love Jesus, it will cause you to obey Jesus. Okay? If you say you love Jesus, it will cause you to obey Jesus. And I get that from verse 10. If you keep my commandment, you will abide in my love. Look, Jesus says this repeatedly throughout the Gospels. I think the most notable one is found in Luke chapter 6 when he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Then Jesus, he proceeds to tell a story about a house that was built on a rock and a house that was built on the sand. In other words, he says, A love for me, right? that does not produce obedience is like you building a house on a sandbar. It won't amount to anything for very long because the first storm that hits you, you're done. The reality is this. Maybe you think if you are, that you're obeying him. Well, how about this? I want to challenge you to evaluate your life to see if you're actually obeying him. Evaluate where you are in your relationship with other people. 
Evaluate your marriage. Evaluate your parenting, your commitment to the church. Is there faithfulness? Is there purity? Is there generosity? Is there sacrifice? Is there forgiveness? Is there peace? Is there godliness? Is there holiness? And I'm willing to bet that there's a lot of resistance there. That there's a lot of resistance. And over a period of time, you know what's sad? That resistance starts kind of callousing around your life where they become just blind spots and soon you've just kind of accepted it. And maybe you think obedience is bad because the very word is synonymous with submission or surrender and so it kind of implies a robbing of joy in your life. But Jesus says the very opposite in verse 10 11. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be Full. The joy of the Lord is something that the unbelieving world will not and cannot understand because to them, freedom to live how they want is the pinnacle of joy, right, for them. Being able to do whatever they want, whenever they want, however way they want. To them, that's the, just, that's the pinnacle of joy, but it's not. Joy for us is a life that is instead lived in harmony with the Lord who loves us. You know that? A joyful life is the result of when you and I finally stop resisting against the Lord and instead learn to listen and trust in the wisdom of his commands, knowing that he knows us even better than we know ourselves and knowing that he loves us more than we could ever love him back. When you experience that type of intimacy with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that is when you are just, when you experience truly the joy that we've been looking for. But it's not just about obeying. Because loving Jesus, and this is my second point, means that we have to love one another. Turn to your neighbor and say, I love you, but I'm not in love with you. So active abiding in Christ means to listen, to love him. And what does it mean to love him? It means to obey, and it means to love each other. To obey him and to love each other. Does that sound familiar? Right? Sounds like the great commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's the point from verses 12, 13 and verse 17. Notice how love for Jesus, which is obedience to him, and then loving those he tells us to love, all, all that runs in parallel. It runs together. It's, an all, it's all in one vein, and you cannot separate it. Loving and obeying him and loving one another. Like you can't say you love if you won't obey. And you can't say you obey if you don't obey the command to love one another. You hear me? That's why in 1 John 4, Apostle John says, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God yet hates his brother, he's a liar. You can't say that you love God but hate your fellow brother. You are a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Okay, so what do we do? How much do we have to love this brother or this sister that you and I, we just can't stand? Huh? 
How much? How much do we have to love the people around us, these people that we can't stand, these people who have perhaps even hurt us, these people who have slandered us, these people who have gossiped behind our backs, have been malicious, these people who have, that we have no connection with. We're not compatible. We're not seeing eye to eye on these things. These people who we would deem as, you know, unlovable folks, we're told in verse 12, you know what? Love one another as I have loved you. There doesn't seem to be any type of stipulation or, or justification in, in you not loving someone. He says, uh, love them just as I have loved you, and you're not lovable. You're not that great. I know everything about you. I know your deepest, darkest secrets. I know <coughs> how horrible of a person you are. I know the terrible thoughts you've had. I know the sins that you've committed day in and day out. I know the lies that you have thought of and have actually acted out on. I know everything about you, and yet I love you. Love them like how I love you. I'm about to show you all a clip. Now, in the, sh in the clip, it's directed towards all the men, but I'm sure we can all find this highly relatable. So let's go ahead and, and roll that for a sec. I look men dead in their eye. Go home and love your wife. No, you don't understand. We're just not in love anymore. I didn't ask you to be in love. I said go home and love your wife. The Bible commands you to. Husbands, love your wives. You're commanded to. Well, no, no, you just, I just, no, I just don't feel like that. Okay, fine. The Bible says love your neighbor as yourself. Your wife is your closest neighbor. Go love her because she's your closest neighbor. Yeah, well, she's not even my closest neighbor. I moved out. That's fine. Jesus said, by this all men will know that you're my disciples, that you have love one for another. So love her because she's your sister in Christ. Well, I don't even know what she's saying. That's fine. The Bible says love your enemies. <laughs> it is absolutely inexcusable for a man who follows Christ to stop loving his wife. It's a choice. It's an act of the will. And we walk away because we don't have a biblical worldview. And we say things like, well, I'm just not happy. And I just don't believe that God would want me to stay in a marriage and be unhappy. Are you serious? Let me see if I understand this correctly. Jesus Christ, the spotless, sinless Lamb of God, was crushed and killed for the glory of the Father, but you he wouldn't want unhappy. Gotta suck it up and go home. <laughs> it is an act of the will. It is a choice. It is accompanied by emotion. Which means, ladies, it's not led by emotion. That's that teenage girl love. Oh my God, I love him. <laughs> which ought to always be followed by this week. <laughs> Amen. Amen. And men, it, it, it's not void of emotion. Biblical love is not void of emotion. And again, I talk to, I hear this from guys all the time. Like they can sell that stuff to me. I'm just not an emotional man. I'm just more of an analytical type. And she wants me to be emotional, and I'm just not a very emotional man. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Well, well, well what do you mean? You, I mean, you don't even know me that well, and you're calling me a liar, and I just said I'm not a very emotional man. Why are you upset that I called you a liar if you're not emotional?
Because here's another one I know. When you're out on the golf course and you shank one, you don't just stand there and say, I seem to have hit that one poorly. <laughs> you watching the ball game and your team getting beat like a tied up goat? <laughs> you don't just sit there and say, they seem to have far more points than we do at this time. <laughs> and if you went to work tomorrow and your stuff was on the sidewalk with a pink slip, you wouldn't stand there and say, well, I really have enjoyed my tenure. <laughs> a man who looks at his wife and says he's just not emotional is actually saying to her, you don't matter as much as my golf game, my favorite team, or my job. That was Vadi Bokum. Probably butchering his last name, Bokum. You know, abiding in Jesus means abiding in his love by loving him. And what does that look like? It will mean obeying him and in turn loving one another as he loved us. And folks, that's not optional, loving each other. It's not an option. Maybe you're struggling today to love your spouse. Maybe you're struggling to simply love today anyone, whoever that might be. If you are a follower of Christ, if you profess and declare that you are a follower of Christ. Folks, I'm sorry, but we have no excuse. We are called to love because it was in the name of God so loved the world that he gave up his own son. He withheld nothing, not even his own son, and yet we withhold everything because we're disgruntled or wounded or what have you. There is no excuse, says the Lord. Look, there's no such thing as a life of love for God that does not manifest itself in a life of love for one another. Okay? Look, people try to play the game. They try to impress people with their massive biblical knowledge, with their astute theology, and the fact Lord, that they are concerned for Christian discipline and, and all this stuff. But then they live their lives as if they have absolutely no time for God's people. They don't want to be associated with the church. They refuse to be held accountable or to hold others accountable. They keep their lives and their resources saved up all for themselves. But when there's a brother or sister in need who are hurting, and so what do they do? They say, uh-uh, this is for me. So what do you think God thinks of all that? He might say, you may have fooled someone. You may have fooled every single other person here in this church, but I'm not impressed. If you don't love the least of these brothers, then you don't love me. If you say that you love me, and I don't see that amongst, between you guys, he says, then it, this isn't real. It may be easy to sit here and say, we'll forever remain in the love of Jesus, that we love him more than life. But if there's no mercy in your life, if there's no grace, if there is no forgiveness extended towards one another, be it your spouse or your child or friend or church member, then we're only kidding ourselves about how much we love God and how, and how much we understand God's love. So do you want to get married? I hope you do. Good. Start by abiding in Christ. Do you want to heal your marriage? Good. Start by abiding in Christ. Do you want your marriage to grow? Good. Start by abiding in Christ. Do you want to experience a joyful life as a single? Great. Start by abiding in Christ. Do you want to ensure that your courtship or your dating with your girl or boyfriend remains pure and edifying and godly? Then good. Start by abiding in Christ. Listen to his voice. So that means to delve deep into his word. That does not mean have... 
only feast on podcasts or books that talk about the Bible. God says, enjoy my word, go into his word, but it's also about loving him enough to do what he says. So don't just read his word, don't just hear his word, but obey his word too. Obey his word. We must love him enough to love one another whether we feel like it or not. The death of your love is determined by how deep you know the love of Christ is. And if you want to know how deep his love is, then you must abide in him. And as you abide in him, then you will know all the wretchedness, all the ugliness, and all the brokenness of your life. And yet he still extends his hand of grace and forgiveness to you. How? 2,000 years ago by laying down his life so that you would live. There is no greater love than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus said. And folks, that's what Jesus did. What is our excuse? As we go on into this brand new 2018 year, as we continue on with our core values, and I am assuming that many of us are challenged here too because we got a lot of unlovely people in our lives. And there's a lot of brokenness that we've brought into it. The Lord is saying this, it doesn't matter your circumstances. And it doesn't matter your pain. That's not to say that he's minimizing what you've gone through. But he says, love them like the way I love you. We have no excuse, but you are empowered by my grace. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, first and foremost, for your faithfulness and how loving and how good you are. Knowing that we are so undeserving of anything, and yet, God, in your faithfulness, you would not just open your hands to us, but you would open your arms wide open to embrace us. You are a good, good Father. I pray today that the message we've heard, um, maybe there's a temptation to kind of romanticize things and simply say, God, this is what I want. I want to get married and I want to, I want to fall in love and all that stuff. But Lord, we thank you for your reminder that apart from you, Lord, there's nothing good. Apart from you, there's nothing good. Remind us, challenge us, awaken us to the reality, the spiritual reality, God, that, that we need to abide in you. This is what creates substance in our lives. This is what creates a foundation so that when we do enter into a relationship, when we do have these friendships and they will fail, that we will not falter, that we will not shake, that even the roaring waves and the beating winds cannot rock the ship that we are in. Folks, I want to give you guys a moment just to meditate, to reflect on what you've heard. Give you guys a time, give yourself some time just to pray, to be repentant, repentive, and say, God, I, I've, been, I've been holding a lot of pain, a lot of grudge, a lot of anger. I've been unforgiving. I've been without grace. I've been merciless. I've been going to every relationship and friendship thinking, you don't deserve my love. 
thank the Lord in the heavens that he had never uttered those words to us. The reality is we all don't deserve his love and yet he still loved us. Take a moment and pray.